All right, let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, if you would. We want to begin reading in verse number 14. Continuing our study in the book of Acts. This evening we're going to look at the sermon. Uh, We're going to kind of do a a little bit of an overview uh, of the sermon of Peter. I called it Peter's Pentecostal Sermon because uh, Peter was a Pentecostal. How do we know that? Because he preached a Pentecostal sermon. So he was a Pentecostal. And so we're going to look at his sermon tonight in uh, Acts chapter 2, verse number 14. The Bible says, But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel, and it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, that I will, pour, I will pour out of my Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above, and signs in the earth beneath, blood, fire, and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, Ye have taken, and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. For David speaketh concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand, that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice, and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known unto me the ways of life. Thou shalt uh, make me full of joy with thy countenance. Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath uh, to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ, to sit on his throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. For David is not ascended into the heavens, But he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus, whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. Let's pray together. 
Lord, we uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Peter's sermon here in Acts chapter 2. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word here, here tonight together. Lord, as we look into it, we ask for your help and grace that you would guide us as we study it. Lord, bring to our, our minds, bring before our faces the things we need to learn and understand. Encourage us, Lord, and strengthen us to do your will, especially even as we think of EBS and the opportunity, Lord, that is before us to give the gospel to people that might not know it or understand it fully. Lord, please give us help and wisdom. Bless each teacher, each one serving, each assistant. Lord, give, give grace, give wisdom, give power. And Lord, bless your, uh, your word as we study it here this evening as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Now in Acts chapter 2, uh, of course, we've already studied how the, the disciples received the Spirit of God in the, the, uh, in, in the event in verse number 2 and 3 and 4, which was the baptism of the Spirit. We saw how that they, they spoke with, uh, with other tongues, that is languages, as an evidence of an unseen, of course, the Spirit of God is unseen, he, you can't see Him with the eye, uh, but as evidence of their filling, and as evidence of their baptism, they received the Spirit of God, uh, or they, they were able to speak in, in other languages. Of course, we saw the importance of that on Sunday. And now Peter is preaching. But what I want you to see from verse 14, which I will not read again, but from verse 14 down to, uh, through verse number uh, 21, Peter is once again, ta he's talking about the book of Joel, which described the background, the scriptural basis for what happened in, in, with the disciples. In other words, they, from the outside, of course, they saw that these people were uh, were speaking in languages that were the native tongues of many of these Jews. And so they thought, well, this is amazing. This is miraculous. It was a sign. It was a sign. That's the key thing you have to understand about the sign gifts, which we covered in Mark. Remember Mark 16. The five sign gifts are not an end in and of themselves. The five sign gifts are signs that God gave to them to confirm something else. And that something else is the gospel and the word of God. So when you see, when you see the you know, TV preachers and stuff like that, and you see it on Facebook, I saw it the other night, there was this lady, she was actually in Greenville, she's some worldwide, whatever, but she was in Greenville and she was doing all these, these things and she said she was, a, you know, she was an apostle or whatever she said. But the point is, it's all, it's all about the signs. In this modern charismatic movement, it's all about the signs. It's not a sign to confirm another thing. It is about the sign itself. The sign is the end. And so that's one way you know that something's not right there. And so they have this sign. They have the Spirit of God. But as you recall, in Luke and in Acts, in Luke chapter 24 with the Great Commission, he said, he said, wait for the promise of the Father, right? He said, wait for the promise of the Father until you be endued with what? Power from on high. And then Acts chapter 1, also written by Luke, Acts chapter 1 says, it is not for you to know the times and seasons, but ye shall receive power when? After that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. You see that? So the Holy Ghost, and we saw this before when we studied, but just as a review, the Holy, the Holy Spirit was given 
to all the disciples for one of the main purposes of the Holy Spirit as he was given to the disciples was to enable them, to empower them to give the gospel, to fulfill this great commission. Without that, they could not have done it. So the Spirit of God, one of his main purposes is to empower that work. The Holy Spirit, to say it like this, initiates and empowers evangelism. How do I know that? See, in this passage we've read, the Holy Spirit was the prompter of this sermon. How do you know that? Well, look at verse 11. Verse 11 says, We do hear them speak in our own tongues. Of course, we know in verse 2, or rather verse 4, that the reason they were speaking in unknown languages is the Spirit of God was actually putting the words in their mouth, enabling them to speak in these languages. Okay? But what were they saying? They were saying what we see in verse 11. The wonderful works of God. So here's what you have. The Spirit of God comes upon them in this miraculous event, this kind of one-time event. And, and the Spirit of God, they're, being, they're literally being kind of carried along, filled with the Spirit. And that's a, maybe a concept we'll cover a little bit later because it's found in Acts multiple times. The idea of being filled with the Spirit means you are you are controlled by the Spirit. Not in a way that a person that is possessed of a devil is controlled, like he loses control of his faculties, but completely controlled. And the, the scriptural example is what? The scriptural example of the filling of the Spirit is what? Being drunk. When wine controls the person. And that's the contrasting example in Ephesians. So they're filled with the Spirit. As a result, the Holy Spirit is directing and guiding and leading everything they're doing. And what is the result? They're speaking to other people the wonderful works of God. But not just that. That's the beginning. Verse 14 is a product of that. It is an outflow of that. Because the Spirit of God came upon them, they were filled with the Spirit. It was He that was prompting this evangelism. It was he that was prompting them to witness to others, and then, which of course we know is fulfillment of the Great Commission. It was he that was providing the power to do it. Listen, to be a witness, I'm talking to you and I'm talking to me as much as to you. We do not need to rely upon our own power or strength or courage we can rely on God's power, strength, and courage. And that means when you feel and you sense that you don't have the power to give the gospel to another person, you can ask God for help. And you, one of the main purposes you and I have the Spirit of God is to be able to do that. That's what the Scripture says. The Spirit gave him utterance, and it was under his influence that Peter's sermon uh, to these Jews, which, I, which, as far as we know, was not in an unknown language. As far as we know, this was a regular old, uh, regular sermon. But as, we, as we've seen, one of the main purposes of the Spirit of God is to enable us to tell other people about Jesus. So that tells us this. If we are controlled by the Spirit of God, if we are influenced by the Spirit of God, and certainly if we're filled with the Spirit of God, we will tell other people about Jesus. 
I'll say that again. If we are influenced, controlled, and certainly if we're filled by the Spirit of God, we will tell other people about Jesus. Why? Because that is what He does in us. He prompts us and urges us and leads us to do that very work. And so if we're not sharing the gospel, if we don't care about people around us that aren't saved, what does that show about our being led of the Spirit of God? We cannot say, I'm just, well, let's just make it clear, we cannot say that we're being influenced and led by the Spirit of God if we are not interested in getting the gospel to other people. And what I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about checking boxes off. I'm not talking about trying to win arguments with people. You know, we can, quote, evangelize in the flesh just because we want to win arguments. This is not what I'm talking I'm talking about telling other people about Jesus because we have a genuine concern for their soul. That is what the Spirit of God prompts us to do. Therefore, if we are under the influence of the Spirit of God and He is leading us, we will care. We will care. He will care in us. You see, and it will come out. You see, the, 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 the Spirit of God, His influence is not just for our own comfort, but it is for the gospel's sake also. See, these disciples could not help. When they were filled with the Spirit, they could not help but talk to people about Jesus. This is why, and I know Brother Stewart talked about it all the time, this is why our daily, active, personal walk with God, which is how we remain close to the Lord and are under the greatest influence of the Spirit of God, that daily walk with God, and that's not just reading your Bible and praying. I mean, that's definitely part of it but it's also walking in, in yieldedness to the Lord on a moment-by-moment -moment basis. When we do that, He will remind us to tell people about Jesus. Now, we might have to, we might have to learn and grow into that. We might have to, have to get better and better at it, more and more bold, and that's all fine and good. There's plenty of room for growth. But if we're, we, if we're being influenced by the Spirit of God, we are going to do that. because we're under His influence. And see, here's the thing. But if we're not walking with God, or even if we did read our Bible and, and pray, but during the day we stopped yielding to Him and we, got, we yielded to the flesh and our fellowship with, with the Spirit of God was broken, I guarantee you're not going to be interested in the lost. And I'm not either. And this explains why new believers as well that are just newly saved, one of the first things they want to do is tell people about Jesus. I, as an example, when I, when I got saved, I, I was saved in a, I've told, I told you in a, in a message not too long ago, uh, I was saved at a camp, but it was actually in the kitchen of the camp. It was at night, so they weren't cooking or anything, but it was in the kitchen. And I remember after I called upon the Lord, verse number 21, I called upon the Lord and I came out of that, of that kitchen, and this is just, this is what happened to me, okay? I called upon the Lord, I came out of that kitchen, and it was like God put words just flying out of my mouth. And I, I, it wasn't something I had premeditated or thought about, 
It was the words just flew out of my mouth. And I know now it was God speaking through me. It was essentially what happened here. Because that was the result of the Spirit of God. It wasn't me, it was the Spirit of God. You see, and that, that is what He does. So it, I just want to throw it out there, and then we'll move on. Somebody's like, I wish you would move on already. If you're unconcerned with the lost, if you're unconcerned with your siblings, your mom and dad, aunt and uncle, friends, neighbors, if you're not concerned and you're not, you're not interested in trying to find some way to get them the gospel, that is not under the influence of the Spirit of God. Do not deceive yourself. This is what the Spirit of God does. This is one of His main functions in us. Let's keep reading down in verse number 22. <clears throat> you men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you. Notice that, which God did by him in the midst of you as ye yourselves also know. Get this. So Peter's preaching, and we know what is the result. How many people at the end of this day have put their faith in Christ? Bug on me. How many people? Does anybody know off the top of your head without looking? 3,000. 3,000 people. But here's what you need to understand. That this did not happen in a day. These 3,000 people believing in Christ and then getting baptized and being added to the church did not happen on the day of Pentecost. That, what led to that reaping was a great deal of sowing. And who was the sower? Jesus was the sower. You see, he mentions it in verse number 22. He says, all these things that Jesus did, his miracles, his wonders, his signs. Of course, we know there were other things like his teaching, all the things he did in Galilee for three and a half years during his public ministry. And in the end, what was the end? In the end, all had forsaken him. Many disciples went back and stopped following him. Look at John chapter 6 real quick, if you would. I want to show you. This is, this is a, a little passage that's often overlooked. People think, when they think of the followers of Christ, the disciples of Christ, they think of the thousands that followed him in Galilee when he fed the 5,000 and taught them on the, the, the slopes of, of the, around the Sea of Galilee. And all that's true, but that was early in his ministry too. Then you get later on in John chapter 6, and verse number 60, notice what it says. Many therefore of his disciples, when they, heard, when they had heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can hear it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Doth this offend you? What and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? It is the Spirit that quickeneth. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you that believe not. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not and who should betray him. And he said, Therefore I said unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my Father. From Notice what it says. From that time, many of his disciples 
went back and walked no more with him. Many. And the closer you get to the end of his life, it dwindles and dwindles and dwindles and dwindles until finally in the garden, all of them forsake him. He is alone. So what do we have here? Back in Acts, Peter's sermon and the success of his sermon and the success of the early days of the church was built upon the sowing of the Lord Jesus. It didn't happen just in one day. Jesus sowed for three and a half years and had little to show for it at the end of his life. They think, man, what, what happened with Peter? Whoa, 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 whoa. Peter says in verse 22, you know what Jesus did. You remember. You remember, it, it had only been 50 days, not even two months since Jesus had died. From this day to when Jesus died, 50 days. That was all still fresh in their mind. And they, they knew what happened to Jesus. They knew what he had done. They knew his miracles. They knew all of that. But that's all the things Jesus did when Peter was still uh, an, an infant Christian, if you will, a baby Christian. And now Peter is preaching the gospel and the basis for everything he's saying is what Jesus already did. And so he is reaping what Jesus sowed. And I think, this is my personal opinion, that the reaping we see in Acts 2 probably would not have, not likely have happened without the sowing that Christ had done. He had prepared the ground. So, just remember that when, our, when we're sharing the gospel with people, our evangelism and our desire to see them saved is just one part. Somebody has to sow. Somebody has to water. Somebody has to do the hard work, the thankless work. Somebody has to do the work that, is, that doesn't show very much visible fruit so that those that reap can reap. And in the end, when the Lord, when the Lord brings all this to fruition and He finally settles all the debts or whatever, however you want to say it, the Bible says that the sower and the waterer and the reaper will what? Rejoice together. But you see, we see the reaping and we concentrate on the reaping, but we forget it. reaping does not happen like that. There must be sowing. And in this case, the reaper was Peter, but the sower was Jesus. <laughs> we also should see that this sermon of Peter's had a context. In verse 14, it says, Ye men of Judea and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. So Peter has an audience. It's important for us to understand that. That means that they were familiar, as we saw already, in, about Jesus' life. They were familiar about current events that had happened. And also, they were familiar, familiar with the Scripture. They were familiar with the prophecies of the Messiah. They were familiar with the Messiah's lordship. They were familiar with the text of Scripture that Peter's going to quote. They were familiar. So G Peter was not giving them new information. They were already familiar with all, the, all of these things. You know what? I was thinking, you know, as we think of this as an example of our own evangelism. When we witness, we have to understand that, that sometimes people are, are already familiar with some of the concepts that we share with them. And, uh, and, and that helps us a lot. If you go to a place where there, there is not a lot of familiarity, it takes a lot more time because you have to cover the bases and make sure they're not misunderstanding in their worldview 
what you're saying and misinterpreting what you're saying. I know that's true in Cambodia. And in Greenville, a lot of people know facts. You know, I was talking to Ari today, and, you know, we were, we were talking about, uh, briefly, we were talking about how that, you know, everybody, everybody believes in Christ in Greenville. Everybody, you know, pretty much everybody believes in Christ. You ask them, oh, yeah, I believe in Christ. But really, when they say they believe in Christ, it's really not so much faith. That's what Ari was talking about, faith. They are really referring to knowledge when they say believe. In other words, they believe about Jesus, what Jesus did is true, like a fact. But as far as personal faith, it's, that's not what it really is describing. It's describing more like knowledge. So people in Greenville have some knowledge. The context in which we witness is they understand a few things, and that can help you. You can, you can, there's some things that you can kind of, you can kind of move along and kind of skip over quickly, but you got to be careful because some people misunderstand the gospel. And so you just got to be careful. But every time we witness to somebody, we witness to them in a context. That context is primarily where they're coming from, what they understand, what you might need to tell them, what you might need to remind them, what you might need to test to make sure they understand it. For instance, if you ask somebody, just as a practical matter, if you're trying to witness someone, you say, are you saved? Okay, you say that. That question, it's a fine question, but it's not exactly clear because you know when you ask that question, you're allowing them to, to determine what they think it means. And you might mean something totally different. They're thinking they've been dunked in a pool of water. You're thinking they believed in Christ. And so they say, yes, conversation's over. Sometimes it's necessary to follow that up. Now, what do you, now what do you mean you're saved? What do you, what do you believe that it means to be saved? How, how do you understand that a person is to be saved? And a lot of times, and I'll cover this in a second, a lot of times people say, well, I was in the hospital one time and I was about to die and Jesus saved me. And I got out of the hospital. That's not what we're talking about. But they were saved. You see, con that's all context. We have to be careful of that. Peter had a context. He used the context. His context was Jesus. Now let's look at Peter's theme. Peter's theme. Now I won't reread re all of this, but you can start to see the theme in verse number uh, 22. But I'll just kind of list out what his central theme was. Here, here was Peter's central theme in his message. Here's what he's preaching on. Peter's preaching on Jesus. Peter's telling them about Jesus. It's that simple. You know what? Peter doesn't even make an appeal at the end. All he does is tell them about Jesus. You know, if you can do that, you can witness. If you can tell somebody about Jesus, first, you have to know Jesus, and second, you have to, you have to be familiar and an expert in Jesus to tell people about Jesus. You ought to know the truths of the gospel yourself from the top of your head. That was Peter's, Peter's sermon. It was about Jesus. What do I mean? He gave testimony to Jesus' spotless life. 
That is, he talked about the historical Jesus. These are the truths. Jesus was a man. He really did these things. The truths of Christianity, of who Jesus was, are rooted in fact. Right? Number two, he talked about, G- he, he, uh, in verse number 23, he says this plainly. Him, skipping a little bit, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. He convinced his audience of sin against Jesus. John 16, verse 8, you know this, and when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father. It's funny because it overlaps this a lot. But the point is, that's talking about the Spirit of God in John 16. But he says, this is what the Spirit of God is going to tell the world. He says, he is going to reprove them of sin. And Peter nails their sin. But see, this is where it's important that when you're witnessing to someone, you stay on topic. When you're sharing the gospel, when you're talking about Christ dying on the cross, his resurrection, salvation, you're not talking about salvation from money problems. You're not talking about salvation from health problems. You're not talking about salvation from family problems. You're not talking about any other kind of deliverance or any other kind of uh, peripheral issue that might be there. Those are all, listen, those are all lesser matters compared to the matter of the soul's condition before God. And that is what Peter's talking about. How do we know? Because he says, repent. And verse 38, be baptized, everyone in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sins. That's what Peter's talking about. Where do you stand with God? Are you in or are you out? Are you right with God or wrong with God? That's the context. You see, it is a dangerous perversion of the gospel to introduce a different subject rather than sin, salvation, and forgiveness when you're given the gospel and allowing something that the gospel's not about, like physical healing, to be about physical healing. That is a perversion of the gospel. TV preachers do this all the time. You see, when you reset the context to something other than sin and a person's uh, state and condition before God, you've lost the point of the gospel. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, not heal bodies. Healing bodies, that's, that's a secondary benefit. That's not the primary purpose. Thirdly, he talked about Jesus' death and how it was preordained of God. He talked about Jesus' resurrection, that he was a witness to it, that it was a historical fact. He talked about the testimonies of Scripture. He quotes two different passages of Scriptures. He used the Scriptures to prove what he was saying. And at the end, he talked about Christ's exaltation and lordship. And in fact, verse 33 tells us, he says that the gift of tongues, in verse 33, was the evidence of Christ's lordship. Remember we talked about the ascension and how Jesus sat on the right hand of God? The evidence of that was them speaking in tongues, in other languages, miraculously. He says in verse 33, he, having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he has shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. You see that? That was a sign. 
So here, here, listen to this. This, you know, this will stir your theological pot. So the gift of the, the miraculous gift for them to speak in other languages in, at Pentecost was actually a sign that Jesus was exalted and seated at the right hand of God, of his position. That's what he's saying. This is part of his sermon about Jesus. And then his conclusion is in verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, he said, you're guilty of the blood of your Messiah, who in spite of your rejection of him is risen, is Lord, and is Christ. So what is he doing? Basically, Peter's talk, his whole sermon is about Jesus. And he's saying, you killed him. You rejected him. You're in big trouble. <laughs> That's what he's saying. You're in big trouble with God. You're in big trouble with your Messiah. And that prompted the response. There was no begging, pleading, earnestly kneeling, putting your hand on the shoulder, not allowing them to say no, asking questions that there are no negative answers to. All this other, all this other bunk that people use in, in what they call soul winning, trying to manipulate and coerce people into receiving the gospel. None of it is scriptural. Peter preached about Jesus and his sermon. Listen now, and, and let this be a test for all of us when we share the gospel. Peter's sermon was about Jesus and their, how that they had rejected him. And his sermon was pointed enough and had the content such that in the end, and when he concluded it, their response was, oh no. Their response was, what shall we do? We are guilty. And when we witness, that should be, we shouldn't, just, we shouldn't just be going to get people to kind of give mental assent. It should strike and prick their conscience. It should make them fear. It should make them afraid of where they're at with God. It should, it should give them pause. Oh, no. That's where it should, that's where it should be. Fear is a perfectly legitimate. These people feared once they knew that they, had, they were responsible for the, their true Messiah's crucifixion. They feared. You see, our witnessing should bring people to that point. And usually if it doesn't, it's because, we're, it's because the conviction of sin is not there. Maybe we've gone around it. But that's one of our purposes is to reprove the world of sin. Sometimes that means you nail it, right? Sometimes that means you nail it. And you don't tell people they're, they're in sin, they're committing sin, they're living in sin because you want them to reform. No, you say, this, this just shows you. This is evidence and testifying to what you are, where you're at with God. Look, look, it. they line up. And the response Without prompting, they knew. Because of Peter's words, they were in trouble with God. They were pricked in the heart. That's conviction. Conviction of sin is what leads a person to ask the right questions and to desire remission of sins, forgiveness. 
And remember, Peter's context in verse 38, which I read a minute ago, is sin and nothing else. He is aiming at their condition with God. He's saying, you are not right with God. You are alienated with Him. You are in big trouble. And so he says in verse number 38, and I know verse 38 is a touchy verse, and uh, we'll we'll probably study that later, but verse 38, notice what he says, repent. And even the word repent has a context in this passage. What is he talking about? They are guilty of the blood of Christ. They rejected him and crucified him. He's saying, repent of that. Now, this repent doesn't mean you can undo it. No, 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 no. This means you need, you need to renounce what you have done and acknowledge that it's wicked. It was wicked and it was evil. And turn to the Messiah and embrace the Messiah that you rejected. It's an acknowledgement of guilt and a renunciation of guilt, a renunciation of the sin, rather. So Peter tells them to repent, and then lastly, go down to verse 40. And this is something we need to keep in mind when we witness as well. And with many other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Now, finally, we get to verse 41. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Notice verse 40 comes before verse 41. It's amazing. It's a miracle of numbers. Verse 40 reminds us that Peter's sermon was not all there was. It reminds us that often our witness requires a great deal of follow-up and repetition. Remember, it wasn't just Peter's sermon and and 3,000 people got saved. No, 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 Peter's sermon, and then all those apostles are working with his people and answering questions and talking and repeating and explaining and elaborating and all that. And then the end of the day, 3,000 people got saved. You know what? That's the way it often is. It's usually, people don't usually, it's just a matter of fact, in a practical matter, People don't usually get saved at a moment. It's usually a, now salvation is in a moment, but the process that leads them to the point that they're willing to be saved is usually pretty long. You got to remember, you might witness to someone and you got to follow that thing up. You got to keep working and praying and working and praying and teaching and explaining. That's what I'm trying to do with Will. Pray for Will. You got to keep explaining, keep explaining. Because he says there were many, verse 40, many other words did he testify and exhort. So his work wasn't over with that sermon. That was just the beginning of the day. It was just the third hour, nine o'clock in the morning. I mean, he had a whole day that he had to talk to these people. So our witness is often going to require not just a few words, but it's going to take a little bit of investment and patience and follow-up and repetition and that's what Peter, that's what this, this day and this sermon shows to us. Hopefully this will be a, a good example to us as we witness. And there are a number, other, a number of other examples in Acts where someone is preaching a sermon or witnessing in some way that provide various kinds of examples to us. But we see here Peter's primary purpose was to tell them about Jesus. That was it. You don't have to be an expert. 
You don't know how, you don't have to be an, an expert in human psychology and soul winning methods and all that stuff to p- tell people about Jesus. You don't have to be an expert. You just got to be able to tell them about Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Stick with Jesus. Let's pray.